0: Well, this last song that the music team did for us, He Who Is Mighty Has Done a Great Thing, I actually asked the team to do that. It's a Christmas song, and it's a reflection that's pulled from our text here this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 46 through 56. And so we'll be in the Gospel of Luke for a little while. It's a long book, and it will take us a while. We're in no real hurry to finish the Gospel of Luke. We'll steadily make progress. And we'll be in Luke. We'll take a few off here and there over the next couple of months. And then we'll break in the summer. We do our summer in the Psalms study, and we'll pick that up in Psalm 77. And then we'll pick right back up in Luke next fall. So we are like to be fairly predictable around here in what we're doing. So we're looking at this gospel, and because it has been a couple of weeks, let me just offer a little bit of context and reminders of what the gospel of Luke is and how it's functioning and operating the Gospel of Luke was written by a guy named Luke. That won't be on the test later, so, but you'll probably remember that one written by a guy named Luke, and Luke was most likely a Gentile. He's referred to as a physician in other places, and he wrote the book of Acts as well. So Luke-Acts is really episode one, episode two. One is telling us about the life and the ministry, what Jesus did. That's the gospel of Luke. And then Acts is telling us about Jesus' first followers and the establishment of the church under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the apostles there in the first century. And so he really covers a lot of ground from the birth of Christ all the way to the eventual arrest and right after the book of Acts. Acts doesn't record it, but the martyrdom of Paul in Rome. So it's covering a quite a span of time if you look at them together. And if you take it just by volume, Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. Paul wrote more books, more letters, but as far as volume goes, Luke actually wrote the most in the New Testament. Luke shows a lot of familiarity with the other gospel accounts, so the at least Matthew and Mark were most likely circulating around at this point. He shows and bounces off of those gospel accounts quite a bit, but he also adds a unique perspective at times too. Luke is very concerned in the first part of his gospel about telling us about what's called the infancy narratives. We have these two accounts of the birth, the Announcement of pregnancy of the birth of John the Baptist. John, his name was John. His parents didn't name him John the Baptist, all right? I guess they could have, but they didn't name him that. We call him John the Baptist because he becomes known as John the Baptizer. His ministry, he goes out to the Jordan River and he's baptizing at the Jordan. And we call him John the Baptist because we're distinguishing him from John the Evangelist, the author of the book of John. And first, second and third John, the epistles of John as well. So John the Baptist, he's born to a woman who's too old to be having babies. Elizabeth says that she's old and barren, and yet here she is having a child. Very, very similar to stories we've seen in the past. Stories like Abraham and Rebecca and Rachel. And then we have this young woman, she's a virgin, and she shouldn't be having a baby either. And so the first couple of chapters, really the first chapter, it's a long chapter focuses on these two birth narratives, the birth of John and then the birth of Jesus. And so last time on Christmas Day, we looked at this meeting of Elizabeth, who's John's mother, and Mary, who would be Jesus's mother, and they meet together, and we looked at that account. And they're relatives, and they're both going to play a significant role here in the, uh, in the early, early first century um, and in the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, So, we're looking at this passage. It's called the Magnificat. And if you've, uh, you may have studied this before. We've actually looked at this passage a couple of times before as we come into the Christmas season at different points. We looked at it in 2013, which was my first year here, and then in 2015. Um, Most of you may not remember those sermons exactly, so we'll do a little review on what we talked about then. So, we're going to ask the question. We love to ask the question in song form around this time of year in Christmas. Mary, did you know? What did Mary know? So we're gonna let Mary speak for herself this morning. What did Mary know? We've been asking for a while. Let's figure out what Mary actually did know. A little bit about Mary, you might remember. She is betrothed, means that she's engaged, and betrothal was something like engagement, but it was really more than that. It was more closer to being married but it was, a legal, it was a legal contract to marry someone in order to break a betrothal rather than an engagement. To break an engagement, it really doesn't require any legal action. You just say, I don't want to get married anymore, and you give the ring back or whatever it is that you do, and you're no longer engaged. To break a betrothal actually required documents. You, you had to have a certificate of divorce, and so it's right in between that of engagement versus being married. And so Mary is in this state, and she's found to be with child. And so Joseph, his righteous man, as Matthew's gospel records for us, and the angel Gabriel visits him, says this child is from the Holy Spirit, Um, and so he goes on and marries her. So that is Mary. She's probably somewhere in the age of 14 to 16, that's most likely, around that age, and so she's young, and that comes into play here in just a minute, because some people have even asked the question, could Mary have actually written this? Because it's so deep, it's so rich, and it's so saturated with Scripture that some people think, well, I don't know if a 15-year-old could have actually produced that particular song in that document. I'll argue that she did, and I'll, uh, we'll, we'll walk through that in just a moment. So what did Mary know? We'll walk through a number of these. One, Mary knew the scriptures, she knew her condition, she knew her privilege, she knew of God's mercy, she knew about judgment, and she knew about God's faithfulness. That'll be our outline as we walk through this this morning. Let me read the text for us. If you have a Bible that has headings over it, these are always helpful. You'll see Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, taken from the first line. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And here's the verse where our song was taken from For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has known strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud with the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich are sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that is, with Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Mary knew the scriptures. I do think this was Mary who wrote this. Seems most natural in the reading and understanding of what's going on. And it is absolutely action packed and chocked full of Old Testament allusions and direct quotations. I do think teenagers are quite capable of writing something like this, and I do think they're quite capable of thinking deeply in these ways as one pastor theologian said it, if teenagers can learn to order at Starbucks, they can learn theological language, all right? You ever been standing in line at that place and you hear them, you're like, I have no idea what they just got, but it's $12. What did you get in that cup? I don't understand what's going on here. Teenagers are totally capable. I've been involved in teen ministry really since I were one, many, many moons ago. And I really, with very, very short breaks, I've been involved in some form of teaching teenagers, being around teenagers. And I'm pretty amazed by what teenagers are able to do. And I think we way, way, way too often assume that they can't do particular things or certain things. Um, If you you keep up with movies at all, it's going to be a teenage girl that saves the world, right? It's always a teenage girl that saves the world. I got hope for you, ladies, so... I got a couple of them, so it's going to be you. So I, I think it's, they're quite capable, and what we see with Mary is that every line of this song that she writes is chocked full of allusions and quotations from Scripture. It's as if the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, the writings, it's as if it's, that's her word bank. And as she's expressing her thoughts, she's grabbing vocabulary from that word bank, and that's just how she talks. And so I think this is going on actually a lot of places in the Bible, all of the Bible. There are these allusions, and the author may not always directly tell you, hey, I'm quoting from the Old Testament here, but there's these allusions, just vocabulary. It works something like this. If we're having a conversation about a particular situation that you're in, and you say, hey, what, what do you think I should do about whatever the problem is or situation that you're in? And I say something like this. Well, you should treat them as you would want to be treated. Okay? Did I quote a scripture? I'm like, eh, sort of, right? <laughs> sort of. But I didn't exactly say, hey, Luke 6.31 says this, or Matthew 7 says this. But what I did do is I captured a thought And I use some of the vocabulary from that to express that. I think this is going on all the time in the Bible. They're grabbing the Old Testament, and so it just becomes the air that they breathe. So I have a list in front of me of many, many, many verses. As you can see on the slide, there are around 35 allusions or quotations in the 10 verses. So each one, if you have a reference Bible, which I I find very useful, I know what Bible everybody chooses to carry, but you'll notice that, one, the text of this looks a little different. If you're actually looking at, they used to, they print these things, you know. Um, for those of you who are looking at your phones, that they, they print these as well. Um, and so it's easy to see in um, this. I use digital things. but uh, So if you look at that, you'll see that the typeset is just a little bit different. Um, noting that it's a song. It's a psalm, a reflection, poetry. And then if you have a reference Bible... Just glance through, and what you'll see is all the little letters that are beside the other letters. Do you see that? I'm looking at the ESV version. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Just in that, I have three notes that let you know that she's tapping into something in the Old Testament. And so what you can do then, if you have a reference Bible there in front of you, is you can look at those, and you can go to the, either the center column or the bottom of the page, however your typeset breaks that out. And you can see all of these references. There's just one after another after another. It's full of it. So Mary knew her Bible. She knew it very, very well. In fact, this particular song, it's been noted, is really almost a, a reflection on Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. You can see these similarities. My soul magnifies the Lord, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in my salvation. Holy is his name. There is none holy like the Lord. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on their strength. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Those who are full hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. So you can see the similarities there with Hannah's song, her reflection on her own barrenness and the gift of the son that she was going to receive in the Old Testament. So I think Mary very much sees herself in this sort of light. I am the next one. I'm the one that's, being cho- that's been chosen to bring the Messiah into the plan of God. It's an amazing thing. I think just by way of application for us, we can just stop and say, I know the new year is just a great time for us to sort of take stock. Let's just be people who are biblically literate, people who are in the word, who know the stories of the Bible, who have this as the air we breathe. Make it a habit, a daily habit to take in the word of God. Saturate yourself with that. It's a great, great privilege that we have to have God's word in front of us. Let's move on. So Mary knew the Scriptures, and that's really an overarching point that we see throughout the song that we're gonna look at. She also had an awareness of her condition. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now I wanna key in on this term, Savior, here for just a moment. Mary recognizes that she needs a savior. Now it is true in the Old Testament the word save can be used in a number of different ways and contexts. You can talk about being saved from an enemy, you can be saved from an invading army or something like that. It can speak of immediate physical deliverance, but much more often, especially in the New Testament, we come to see that the word saved has uh, connotations for being saved spiritually saved. And so the announcement that comes later in the, book of Ag, in the book of Luke is that in Bethlehem, who has been born? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Well, it wasn't saving from the Romans. It was saving from our sins. And so Mary understood that she needed a Savior. I bring this up because I know many of you maybe have grown up or have had some sort of an influence of Catholic theology and Catholic thought on how you think about the gospel and how you read the Bible. Maybe some of you have come out of that background. Maybe some of you are even visiting with us today and maybe you're involved in that particular church. And I just wanna say that the Catholic and Protestant teaching on this is very different. And you just need to know that. Um, In Catholic theology, there are four what's called the Marian dogmas, all right? So four things that you're supposed to believe about Mary. One is this, that she was the mother of God, which we can agree with that, the Theotokos, as it's called. Two, they believe that Mary was perpetually a virgin. So she stayed perpetually a virgin for all of her life, which is problematic because we do learn later that Jesus has brothers. Um, So that is a problem to me. Uh, Number three, Mary was immaculately conceived. So the Immaculate Conception. Some people think the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Christ. It doesn't, actually. In Catholic theology, the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Mary. And what that teaches is that Mary was born sinless. And so that's how she could be the mother of God and not pass down a sin nature to Jesus. They believe that she was born sinless, which to me just kind of kicks, If it's a problem for you getting a sinless Christ, if it's a problem, it just kicks it back a generation. Like, well, where did that come from? Well, and you could just kind of keep doing that, you know, infinitely. Um, how did that happen to Mary? So, if it could happen to Mary, why not just start with Jesus? I don't, you don't need that. And then the fourth thing that you must believe is the Assumption of Mary, um, similar to. Not the same as, but similar to the ascension of Christ, that Mary bodily and her spirit was taken up um, to heaven at the end of her life. Regarding the Immaculate Conception, I just want to read the official teaching of Catholic dogma, Catholic Church. We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the Blessed Virgin Mary is in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, here's the important part, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. So that is the official teaching I think that's a huge problem with what we see here in verse 47, that Mary actually needs a Savior. Why would she need a Savior if she had no sin? So I think it's a problem. There's an interesting exchange later in Jesus' ministry after he's done incredible, miraculous things. A lady in the back speaks up in the crowd. They're watching Jesus in just in absolute awe. This is in Luke 11. We'll get to it in the next 10 years at some point. Luke 11, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. So the lady says, wow, this is incredible, Jesus. Blessed is the woman who raised you, who was your mom. What did Jesus say? But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Kind of interesting that he deflects the attention away from Mary and actually says, Actually, what I want to talk to you about is your belief, the state of your own heart. Pretty amazing exchange there. So, what did Mary know? She knew the scriptures very obviously. She knew her condition. She had a sense of her own privilege. She had a sense of her own privilege of being able to be a part of God's plan. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name she understood her privilege this is really one of the striking parts about mary as we read especially in the gospel of luke she comes across as a humble servant who's just happy to be used by the lord she understands that she doesn't deserve a leading role in this play at all not very long ago, a prominent Hollywood personality, rap artist Kanye West, made a profession of faith in Christ. Some of you are nervous already. He's now known as Ye. Y e made a profession of faith in Christ, and things seemed to start out on pretty good grounds. Actually, knew one of the guys that was involved in his life and working to disciple him. Friend that I went to school with. And there were quite a few folks who were saying, hey, y'all, let's pump the brakes on this a little bit and just kind of see where things go. And then I saw him on stage with Joel Osteen shortly after that. And they're talking about music, they're talking about artists, and they're talking about Christians' engagement in the culture through music and arts. And Kanye says this, the trend shift is going to change. Jesus has won the victory. Because now... I told you about my arrogance and cockiness already. Now the greatest artist that God has ever created is working for him. Wow. Congratulations. Yay. Amazing. The greatest artist that God has ever created is now on his side. So hey, y'all, get ready. The gospel's taking over. And I I just couldn't believe what I was seeing with that. Now, regardless of where your view of whatever style of music, that's really not even the point. The point is, how could you possibly think that you're so awesome that God needs you? How could you possibly think that? And I hear things like that, and I, I see it. That one's just an incredibly glaring example. Most people aren't quite so overt with how lucky the Lord is to have them. But I, I read that, and then I look at something like this, and I look at Mary and her tone. How different He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, now on all generations are going to call me blessed. He's mighty. He's done great things for me. Holy is his name. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. She knew her privilege. Years ago, John MacArthur preached a sermon that stuck with me. He called it the myth of influence. And basically in that, he preached from 1 Corinthians 1 where it says, there's not many noble, not many wise among you. Um, Don't get too high on yourselves. The Lord is accomplishing his purpose through very, very, very normal, ordinary people. And it it had a big influence on me because his point was, we don't have to go get all the name brands. We don't have to get um, famous people. The gospel is going to continue to move forward, and that's exactly what happens here in the first century. That was really the heart of the first messages that I preached here. A call for clay pots. Let's just... Be the pots that deliver the treasure of the gospel. That's all we're trying to do. Let's just be faithful with what the Lord has given us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. God's using normal people to accomplish his mission. He has a history of that throughout the scripture. So she knew her privilege. I think this is good for us to stop as well. I think many of us, sometimes you look at the gifting of others, and I mentioned this not long ago in another sermon, and we can have a sense of gift envy, right? We see the gifts that maybe other Christians have of teaching or singing or serving in some particular way, whatever it is, and we can have a tendency to say, God, why didn't you make me like this? Why didn't you make me like that? And that's exactly what Paul is addressing over in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says that, hey, one part of the body is not less important than another just because it's not prominent. You know this is true if you've ever had a paper cut, right? Like, you didn't think about your finger all day until you cut it with a piece of paper, and then it dominates your attention for the next little while. It's all you can think about. It's an important part, even though it may not be prominent. That's Paul's point. Every part is essential. The Lord's orchestrating this. Mary knows her privilege. We should also understand the privilege that we have to be a part of God's mission in whatever way. Next, she understands God's mercy. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear him. There's a the sense in which everybody is a recipient of God's mercy if you're awake and breathing right now. We are alive. God calls the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous just as well, as Jesus would later say in Matthew 5. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. The atheist and the Christian can both plant crops and they both work. Wouldn't that be amazing if one were suddenly, you know, two, two fields side by side and one is green, the other's brown, with no perceptible difference in how you plant or harvest or your farming practices. That's not how it works, though. The world works for both people, and that's what is often referred to as God's common grace. God does this. But here we're talking about God's saving grace, generation to generation to generation. Things are always changing, aren't they? But God never changes, and his message never changes. He's always faithful. He always receives those who are humble, always. Mindy and I were looking back over some pictures um, just recently, old pictures and even like marking the decade here, and just seeing how the kids have changed. I haven't changed at all, uh, but the kids have. So Mindy hasn't, but um, uh, you know maybe maybe I've changed a little. Um, and just recently, we saw some friends back in Alabama, and some uh, some people that we haven't seen in a very long time. And uh, that we're we're standing there talking, and then um, their son walks up. And their son was, you know, this big. And now he's a 6'2 man, big old dude. And like, that little dude is just not the same guy that I knew, you know, way back when. Things are always changing, always changing. And it can give us whiplash just living in this world. Politically, the situation's always changing. The economy's always changing. But then there's God, generation to generation to generation. And Mary's tapping into that. God has always worked this way. He's faithful. There's never gonna be an upgrade to the gospel. If anybody tries to sell you gospel 2.0, this is what you need now, run, run fast. You don't need anything new, generation to generation. He is always faithful. Next, she understood God's mercy. That she was a recipient of God's mercy. She understood judgment as well. Verse 51, he's shown strength with his arm, He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought them down, brought the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He brings judgment as well. This is probably tapping into the Exodus story. Exodus 6.1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, his arm, he'll send them out with a strong hand, and he'll drive them out of his land. She's dipping into a string of Old Testament texts, The strong arm, the mighty right hand of God. He's gonna bring reversal about. We mention this sometimes, and I think it's worth repeating here. We talk often about the combination of salvation and judgment in the Bible. And you really can't have a Bible story of salvation without judgment. Think about it. When you have Adam, Adam and Eve are saved, the serpent is judged, and we see also that a sacrifice is made to cover their shame, the animal takes on their judgment. How about Noah in the ark? He's saved, the world is judged, Israel is saved at the Exodus event, Egypt is judged, and on and on and on you go. Well, we have the same thing here. The humble are going to be saved, and then verse 52 51, he's shown strength with his arm. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He brings them down. Salvation and judgment go together. Luke finds a a theme of reversal of fortunes often. So we have quite a few of these. He says, behold, some who were first will be last and the last will be first. That's Luke 13. Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we see this often in the gospel of Luke is this reversal of fortunes. The humble are gonna be exalted. The proud are gonna be put down. It's a promise. So Mary, she knows the scriptures. She knows her condition. She knows her privilege. She knows God's mercy. She knows about judgment. And then lastly, she knows also about the faithfulness of God. She knows about his faithfulness. Verse 52 He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's faithfulness. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, there are three essential parts of the promise God made to Abraham. There was nothing particularly spectacular about Abraham. God just chooses to work through this man named Abram, later changes his name to Abraham. And there are three essential elements of the promise he made. You're gonna have descendants, lots of them. You're gonna have land and you're gonna have blessing and redemption. Those are the three parts of this Abrahamic promise. And what Mary is doing, she's tapping into that and saying, this is coming about. This is coming about in what we now call this new covenant covenant this new thing that the Lord is doing. He's making good on his promises. She knew about God's faithfulness. Today we get to celebrate communion, and it's really a fitting end to our sermon here today because as Mary is looking back on God's faithfulness, she's also recognizing this new work that God is doing, which we've come to understand is the new covenant. I want to glance ahead in Luke just a little bit over in Luke chapter 2, verse 34. So Jesus is born, and then this is when they take him to the temple, and he meets someone named Simeon. Luke 2, 34. We'll explore this in more detail when we get to it. Verse 34 says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary learns from Simeon. We've been asking the question what did Mary know? Well, she knew that something was coming for her son, and she knew that a sword would pierce through her own soul. Of course, we're talking about the crucifixion and then subsequently the resurrection of Jesus. We talk a lot around Christmas time, and we're just coming off of that season, about the birth of Christ, and always try to remind us that we not only need to think about the birth of Christ, we need to think about the life of Christ. If you subtract the Easter story in Christmas, all you have is a sentimental story of a baby that's born to an unwed mother. If you have the Easter story without the Christmas story, understanding this is God in the flesh, it's just a sad story about a man who was killed unrighteously and a miscarriage of justice. But when you put them together, when you understand that this is the God-man and this blood that was shed is inaugurating a new covenant, a new work, and we are able to be a part of that through the work that Jesus has done. Well, in just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion I love Communion Sundays, and just uh, by way of introduction to that, if you're new here with us, we practice open communion, which means that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate in communion with us. If that doesn't really make sense to you, that vocabulary, and you're not sure where you stand with Christ, we would just ask you just watch today. Uh, Consider this a time to reflect and to pray and to consider, and we would love to have a conversation with you afterwards. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time even to look around and recognize who is celebrating this time with us. In the gospel or the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is a mess. It's a hot mess of a place. It's a place that you would probably tell a first-year seminary student, don't take that one, all right, if it comes across the posting wire at the seminary page. That one's a mess. You're going to have problems there. But Paul was there, and he was actually the founding pastor of the church in Corinth, and he addresses so many different problems, these divisions, dissension, immorality amongst the people. And then he comes to 1 Corinthians 11. And what we learn about communion this time together to remember the gospel is that this is what unifies us and centers us. This is what we're all about. We can disagree on a lot of different things, we can have all sorts of problems. But what, when we come together for communion, this is central to our identity as Christians. We recognize the body that was given for us and the blood that was shed so that this new covenant can be inaugurated. That's what we get to celebrate today. I'll ask our servers to come forward, and I'll lead us in a word of prayer and our musicians as well. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to be together today. We thank you for this gift, this new covenant that we come to celebrate today. Through the blood of Jesus, we now have access to you. What an amazing reality that is. So, Father, we are in awe of your grace to us. And just like Mary, just like she seemed to just be humbled that you would use her in any sort of way to accomplish your purposes, we pray that we would take on the same attitude and posture, that we get to be a part of something that you're doing in the world. What a privilege it is. So, Lord, now as we take communion, we pray that we would take this with a sense of celebration, recognizing that we are accepted in Christ because of the work that he has accomplished, not because of our own merits. We pray that you would be pleased. We praise things in Christ's name, amen.